0: Wake Up with Nubian Tigers Talk, a podcast brought to you by a group of Black Princetonians where we talk about issues that impact our Black and Brown communities. My name is Michelle Jacobs, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Ray Smoltz. So, Ray, we are back from our hiatus.
1: It is 2023, and it's all about me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, I heard you were out uh, sunbathing during Uh. my. hiatus.
1: You know, uh, mental health wise, it was fantastic. It was you know a week off, sunning, uh, relaxing, reading. You know, uh, just the little things you don't get a chance to do while you're running around doing all your day to day work or what have. Yeah, yeah. It was it was terrific. What about you?
0: I was just here chilling. You know, enjoying the holidays with the family. It was good. But but we hit twenty twenty three. And the crap keeps coming.
1: Yeah. yeah. So,
0: you know, as we're recording this, uh, Tyree Nichols has just been killed by the police and we're getting the um, public responses to that. So today we're going to have a psychiatrist come on. Mm -hmm. She's going to talk a little bit about uh, trauma Uh, what happens when uh, there's a police incident in our communities. And also, she's an expert on mental health, uh, people with mental health issues and their interactions with the police. Mm -hmm. So it seems like a timely uh, moment to, to bring her on. It
1: is. It is.
0: Our guest today is Dr. Sarah Y. Vincent, who is the interim chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science and the director of the Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Fellowship Program at Morehouse School of Medicine. She obtained her undergraduate degree from FAMU and her medical degree from the University of Florida College of Medicine. Her residency in general psychiatry was through Harvard Medical School's Cambridge Health Alliance. She also completed two fellowships. One is in forensic psychiatry and the other in adolescent psychiatry. Dr. Vincent's public research examines inequalities in the delivery of mental health services, including the intersections of inadequate mental health care and the criminal justice system. She also writes about the ways those with mental health issues are put at risk when dealing with the police. Welcome to the show, Dr. Vincent.
2: Thank you for having me. Okay. So,
0: um, there's so many issues that are going on in our communities with regard to mental health, but let let us start with the um, fact that many people are feeling traumatized, uh, particularly since the death of Tyree Nichols, and in general since the COVID uh, matter, we we just see people looking traumatized all the time. So, can you talk to us a little bit about? What is trauma? What causes that? And what you're seeing um, since the COVID period started?
2: Absolutely. So, um, you know, trauma is part of the experience of Black people in America and always has been. Um, And even things like highly publicized police killings, you know, they're not new, right? They're able to go viral in a way that's different now, but um, for instance, in in Cast, you know, the, the author talks about how they used to have lynching postcards and disseminate images of people who've been murdered by white mobs, right? So it's really not that different, right? This is the 2023 iteration of that. So I, I don't know that it's that our communities are more traumatized than they were in the past, right? We just have a level of access and penetration that looks different now. Um, but when you talk about trauma, at its core, it's something that Uh, threatens someone's sense of safety and security in the world. And when you talk about traumatic stress disorders, um, it is producing a set of symptoms that uh, in some situations may actually help you survive, uh, but then get generalized to environments or to situations where it's not actually adaptive anymore. right? So reacting quickly when your life is genuinely at risk may help you miss that chair being thrown at you by your stepfather. Um, Doing that in school may get you in trouble in ISS, right? Uh, And so um, the burden of trauma has always been disproportionately high in our communities. And so, too, um, are the manifestations going to be. And so with covid We had a situation where there was a collective societal trauma, but as is the case with all things, there is a disproportionate impact on uh, marginalized communities, including our own, right? Um, And so there wasn't just COVID, there were the school inequities. Um, If you come from a family that can pay a tutor in Kumon Academy and everybody has their own computer, what homeschooling meant for that student looked really different than some of my mom's in my public sector clinic where they're trying to do homework off of her cell phone. Right, um, and so all of the ways that covid was disruptive, all of the ripple effects um psychosocially apart from the the medical losses and and the loss of life, which we also know disproportionately impacted our community um because of all the extant, you know, societal inequities, those hit our kids more usually
0: that that was excellent, thank you. And we're also seeing that since um, the government and businesses have pushed us to, quote unquote, get back to normal. (laughs) Um, We're seeing a lot of, for example, uh, teenagers, young adults, um, engaging in activities that uh, lead them to get into trouble with the police and maybe are over the top in terms of um, uh, their behavior. So has COVID ha- caused that or what, what's happening there? Also, the you know, a uh, large number of kids are now committing suicide. Not a large number, but a greater proportion of kids. Are- yeah, since, kids.
1: since the pandemic. Yeah.
0: Right, Black kids since the pandemic are committing suicide. So what what are you finding there?
2: Yeah, so the the issue of, you know, suicidality in youth, we were already seeing some of that pre-COVID. We were already seeing it rise in Black children, in particular, pre-COVID. What we've seen, though, is that the mental health impacts, um, the negative mental health impacts, you know, predictably have disproportionately impacted uh, racially marginalized communities too. So we already had that trend happening, and then this kind of poured some gasoline on it you know, but but when it comes to uh, teenagers and behavior and, you know, delinquent activities or acting out, things like that, a lot of times the foundation for that was laid really early on, right? And so um, as a society, we have chosen not to invest, allocate resources to things that make families stronger, right? We don't have things like decent maternity leave or paternity leave at all in some cases. We don't subsidize child care in the way that every comparable nation to us does. We do things like put single moms on on-demand work schedules that make it impossible for them to provide adequate supervision for their children, right? There are all these things that we do and have done for a very long time that set people up that set families up um, not to be able to give children what they need in order to have a solid foundation. So, you know, COVID was certainly an accelerant, but it's not the um, it's not the boogeyman people are are making it out to be. Um, we are paying the consequences of a lack of allocation to resources for children and adolescents in this country.
1: If I could just follow up one more time with Michelle's question about Um, adolescence. um since COVID uh, right in the middle of it, or right near the beginning of it, Dr. Vinson, we had the George Floyd murder in Minneapolis. And I've been doing some work with uh, my former private school and the students that are there and the faculty. Tell me how George Floyd's murder along with the pandemic affected the youth at that point, how were they uh, traumatized even before what went on with Tyree Nichols or any other incident that's happened in the last couple of years?
2: Yeah, so I think it's it's important to to, to, to take a step back and think about kind of Black youth as the diverse group of of people that they are. Right. So for some um, for some Black youth, maybe George Floyd's murder was the first time they really sat with a police killing of an unarmed Black man for a lot of the black youth i see in public sector clinics or djj they've seen people shot they know people who've died so like george floyd wasn't the wake up call for them they're like yeah that's what happens in my neighborhood right um so there's a way that i think it was it was framed as this um you know sea change and this eye opening event for so many people but but in reality you have kids who are exposed to that And have been their entire lives. Um, And so it wasn't, um, I don't think it had the impact on those kids that it may have had for other people in other segments of society um, who were, you know, surprised by it. I can't tell you how many forensic evaluations I've done where they knew somebody by the age of 22 who died at the hands of police, who was running away from police, who, right? And, And so Um, I think there's a way that, uh, you know, this idea that people are more stressed um, applies to people who had some degree of separation from Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Um, And and there are a lot of people, um, tragically, who who never, ever have had the luxury of being unaware.
1: I I mean, social media certainly accelerated all of that. I mean, being able to see that happen as it happened, as it unfolded, was re-traumatizing, I'm sure every time that video was played back.
2: Yeah, but I think that there's a way, um, and, and I agree with you, There's there's a traumatizing element to repeated exposure to seeing someone you relate to who looks like you, who looks like your uncle, who looks like your brother, who looks like your father being killed. There's a way though that social media democratized news and coverage, right? So in another world without social media and that 17 year old, girl with the bravery to stand there and document what was happening, that original police report that mentioned none of that would have been the final say on what happened. And you would have had to depend on probably a white male editor in Minneapolis making a story out of this, which they may or may not have chosen to do, right? And so even when you look at things like Black Lives Matter as a movement overall, I don't know that it's possible without social media because social media allowed um, a group of people who have traditionally systematically been kept out of newsrooms who are not the gatekeepers for what stories get told um, to not be the final say on what gets amplified. Um, so I think that social media actually played a really critical role there in a in a good way um, mm-hmm. and has been in a lot of movements.
1: So since we've kind of... Uh segued into uh, law enforcement and, you know, how policing in our communities um, takes place, especially with those of us that have mental health issues. I mean, as it stands now, um, we make up, meaning, you know, black folk make up a third of the people that are killed by the police that with mental health issues. Can you explain why that is?
2: It's something we see a lot of, right? Where you're already marginalized on on one count and then you have something else that further marginalizes you Um, and there's a way that in our society just acknowledging the full humanity and the spectrum of feelings that black people have um isn't something we want to do right because if black people are fully human then tearing apart black families and enslaving them is really bad and america is not so beautiful and so like the dissonance that introduces to like really accept the full humanity of Black people um, is one that our country still hasn't really, really grappled with, right? And so when you're talking about the feelings of Black people, whether it's doctors thinking they don't need as much pain medicine, and doctors still now believe that, um, or whether it's, you know, Black people don't get depressed, Black people don't get anxious, or it's, you know, they're angry, they can't be psychotic or have some serious mental illness, right? There's a denial of um that full spectrum of experience and so where a white person with mental illness may be given a certain benefit of the doubt or be met with a certain degree of curiosity you may not see that same thing happen with black people now that said we do know that the people with severe mental illness are disproportionately killed by the police regardless of race um but like all things um it's even more so for for black people
0: so some of the calls for reform of the police have suggested that um, the police get better mental health, better training on how to deal with people who are having a mental health crisis, right? Um, and so I was just actually reading yesterday where a jurisdiction is saying, yes, we're gonna we're gonna train the police and they can go out with some mental health counselors and and help that way. Um, so is that really going to (laughs) work and what's what is the data showing us about that kind of uh, approach
2: so you do so so I'll I'll tease that out to, to two things so one is you know just police training let's teach them about mental health issues and you have a program called CIT crisis and adventure training that's very popular um very widespread um that you know a lot of people feel good about doing right when you actually look at the studies related to CIT, what you see is, um, you know, maybe police officers take some people to a mental hospital more so than a jail, um, but there's no data showing that it has decreased police killings, there's no data um, or if there is, I'm not aware of it. It's not published or, or findable by by me, or at least the last time I looked, there's no data showing that it um, shrinks racial inequities. There's no data showing um, that it is actually effective at changing the problems with what they do. So the officers perceive themselves to be better able to handle these things, but you know, I really don't care about the officer's perception. I care about whether my cousin makes it out of this encounter alive and we don't have any data showing that CIT does those things. Mm. Um, Mm. So education in and of itself is not going to be enough, especially time-limited education in a system that since its inception has not been about the protection of Black people, right? And so there are fundamental um, issues you have to address that a CIT course is, is not going to, to do. Um, and I think it's telling that no one is looking at those more meaningful, you know, outcome measures. Now, when you're talking about a mental health professional going out with an officer, um, they call those co-responder models with this idea you have, you know, mental health paired with, with the police presence, you do have good data for some of those programs. Now, um, say you have data from Oregon on a program like that. Well, you can't extrapolate Oregon to the Bronx or to Southwest Atlanta, right? <laughs> so there are ways exactly. that you have to exactly. um, be thoughtful about that.
1: Yeah, right? I've, been, I've um, been in Portland. It, it ain't that hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's not great, but Portland is not the South Bronx. Let me just say that.
2: Right, right. And, but, you know, not to... What they're doing in Portland is great, right? But you have to... Um, take input from your community. You have to consider the needs of a community um, for those models. And and I think that that is the the challenge we're facing now. Um, And some of the conversations we have, where these people just want to, you know, plug and play and think you can. And, you know, we have these conversations in, in Georgia pretty regularly where they're like, oh, well, in New York. And I'm like, in New York, they have Medicaid for people. And hospitals don't discharge people to the street. Like, we, right. that is apples and oranges, y'all. Mm, like, you can't, mm, that's mm. not, no. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that's part of the the issue though, when you have people who are, law enforcement kind of moonlighting as mental health professionals. They don't understand um, the the mental health system. Can I, can I really
1: interject important. a question, Michelle, before yes, you go ahead. on to your next one? Sure. So, Dr. Vincent, also, you know, in these police confrontations, also, it's not just whatever the police do to that mentally ill person, right? What Whatever altercation they may have is one thing. But then the medical attention given to that person into mental health crisis that is also either doesn't happen or it happens too late. Right. It happens improperly where someone like the young man, Elijah M- M- McLean yes, exactly. was given ketamine and he died from that injection because they were trying to make him docile so that they can bring him in, into, uh, into the jail. Yeah.
2: And you know, I, I I love what I do and I I love my work in being a psychiatrist but I'm very clear um the mental health care system the medical system is no less racist than the police system is racism in mental health kills people just like racism in criminal justice kills people it's just not in a way that goes viral right um and I in in my role as a forensic mental health expert often have Um, the opportunity to see someone who has had a very bad life outcome because they're facing the death penalty or they've already been convicted of it or what have you. And I get their records from elementary school and child protective services and mental health. And I see how um, children with tremendous traumas were just called oppositional and just called uncooperative. And those traumas were never considered, let alone addressed by these so-called professionals who were tasked with helping them. Um, and if they had, right, maybe their life would have gone differently. If child welfare had been appropriately funded and actually supported that family instead of tearing it apart, maybe their life would have gone differently, right? So there's a there's a way that I think... Um, the, the nature of what happens and and the visibility of what happens in criminal justice sometimes um lets these other systems off the hook that feed that system and that set up um these these encounters and that are in in my opinion just as blameworthy
0: right right so that that opens up so many questions but um are you familiar with the recent um, order that the mayor, the current mayor of New York, uh, Mayor Adams, gave where he authorized the police to uh, take into custody. I'm doing air quotes for the people who can't see me, (laughs) you know, which we all mean know means arrest um, (laughs) people who are homeless and who have mental health issues. Um, And the mental health community in New York, it just is exploding, right? It's just like, what what are we going to what what are you asking us to do? So what what do you think about uh, that kind of approach to dealing, helping again, air quotes, <laughs> uh, the unhoused and the mentally ill?
2: Yeah, well, it's it's one of those things, and and I'll say the the people with lived experience with mental health problems and um, mental health providers aren't always on the same side of outrage. Um, but on this particular one, uh, <laughs> the mental health professionals don't like it at all either. Um, and I think it, it gets back to that idea of, and I know, I mean, I, I think Mayor Adams has a has a background in law enforcement. Yes. Um, but it gets back to this, this idea of, um, you know, coercion and control as the answer to things, right? And coming to the end point where it's like, okay, so they make them go to a psych hospital then what right um where are they going to sleep once they get out exactly. and um will they be able to access the care they need um once they get out because hospitals it, you know mental health issues they're not like pneumonia where you go in you get some antibiotics and you come out and it's totally gone mm-hmm. right the mm-hmm. population he's talking about is one that has severe persistent mental illness that needs ongoing care there is absolutely nothing curative about a hospitalization mm-hmm. absolutely nothing mm-hmm. it is basic stabilization but when you look at how people do over time um the number of hospitalizations actually is negatively correlated with how well they're doing right what is positively correlated is things like engagement, stability, housing, community, none of none of which this this plan is going to help build.
0: So, so in your view, what do you see as if if you could construct an approach to dealing with uh, mental health issues, as opposed to directing those individuals to the police, what would you like to see happen?
2: Yeah, so I think I think there's there's two parts to that. So a lot of times when there's discussions around mental health problems and us not having enough, you know, mental health treatment or psychiatrists or, or things like that, the the conversation tends to lead toward um, well, we need more crisis beds, we need more psychiatrists, we need more, you know, money for mental health. Sure. Another way that we could think about approaching that though is to say like, why are so many people so sick and so ill and so symptomatic? Right. And we can make decisions about setting people up to actually be healthy. And what sets people up to actually be healthy really doesn't have a whole lot to do with the mental health system or the medical system. Right. It has to do with housing, schooling, food, (laughs) like basic human necessities that, again, as a society, we've decided these things are a privilege, not a right. And we haven't found a way. Um, or we're unwilling to commit to a way to guarantee that people have those things. And so the, the conversation isn't really about more hospital beds, and it never was. The conversation is about affordability and wealth inequality and housing stability and, and things like that, um, which is, you know, a harder conversation for the mayor to have than tell the police to send those, those people to the hospital. Mm.
0: Right, right, right. Mm. So totally right. So, uh, uh, you know, as always, we're we're running short on time, but we we want to see if we can get the big picture from you or have have a discussion with you about uh, the seeming reluctance in our communities to seek out uh, mental health assistance, particularly when we are one, many of us suffering from trauma, and then we do self-medication, which leads to addiction, um, and the families and the individuals are all always reluctant to say, you know, let's reach out to have some, a, a, a mind doctor <laughs> come in and try mm-hmm. to help us get that straightened out. So, um, it, you know, where are we with that? Is our community progressing on that issue, or what's what's happening there?
2: Yeah. So this is one of those things where you really do see differences generationally. Um, and I'm not sure of your your audience demographics. Um, but you know the the millennials and um, the gen Zers, it's 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 completely different than my parents, you know, generation in terms of seeking that out. And for what what I come across and hear is that they actually want help and have difficulty finding affordable culturally competent care. Um, and so there definitely is a shift in how um, help seeking is discussed, um, and how it's been normalized by a lot of the younger generation. And um, those barriers, though, uh, sometimes have less to do with stigma and more to do with very practical things like um, the ways that resources, you know, just aren't aren't allocated to to that population. And 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 stigma is a it's an important thing to consider. But I think there are ways that hospital systems and the mental health industry um, uses it as a scapegoat, right? Because if stigma is the problem, let's give these Black people some posters. If they experience racism when they try to see your provider or systematic inequity makes it harder for them to see because you've decided to put all your practices in the suburbs, then uh, again, that's a much a harder thing to address and it puts the onus on you rather than those Black people who don't understand. It's, um, you know, what is it about our system that is not welcoming or accessible to Black people? So sometimes that stigma conversation isn't paired with the very real conversation that needs to be had about barriers and disparate treatment.
1: Can I ask uh, just one yeah. quick follow up with that? And uh, Michelle mentioned earlier, Dr. Vincent, that some of our uh, members of our group uh, have uh, have had mental health issues over the years. And some of us are even in 12 step programs. Um, what has has that made a difference uh, for people that are alcoholics and addicts? And why aren't those kind of programs offered to people that might that have mental health situations or if they're involved in drugs or alcoholism that rehab centers aren't the first alternative, as opposed to being jailed for, you know, an indefinite amount of time.
2: Well, you know, rehab centers and, you know, mental health care in general, it's, it's a business. Right. And so um, just like anything else, the bottom line is what is what drives things. And, Um, I grew up in a small town in Northwest Florida and I genuinely had no concept of people going to rehab for substance use disorders because everyone I saw went to jail. Like I didn't even know getting treatment was like an option and a thing people did until I was in medical school. Um, and so I, until again, it comes down to how we've constructed society and until we decide healthcare is a right, um, that access is is not going to be equitable, and we we know that our community, without fail, falls on the on the wrong side of of those inequities.
0: Right, right. So that's so important. But let me let me let me just uh, jump back for a second to the um, age differential. The Gen Z people and the millennials still have to deal with their relatives who are elders like my age for example right uh where there's a there's still that barrier to uh the idea of mental health treatment and i know a lot of our trans kids right become unhoused because their families or their elders kick them out um and won't deal with the fact that they have some uh differing Issues of identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how, is there anything we can do to help our community deal with that age difference with respect to mental health treatment?
2: Yeah. So, I think that you know what you're doing today is so important because you know sometimes these conversations don't come up until there's a crisis or until there's a problem, and it's very hard to have an open, logical, rational conversation in that kind of setting um and so exposure is is important you know one of the things that i talk to families about is um you know because the the stigma of mental health issues is is real right and so when you're black you already know you have less room for error in society that's not a perception that is the reality and so having something else stigmatizing that is attached to you has another kind of threat for black people and that's real Um, But the flip side of that, right, is that having something that is impacting your thoughts, feelings, or behaviors, uh, a mental health issue, right, um, in a society that gives you less room for error and having that unaddressed and untreated can have different kinds of implications for you that are also disproportionate. So my conversations with families acknowledge that it's not fair, but also acknowledge that your Black boy with ADHD, if he drops out of school, this is what his path looks like.
1: Mm. Right. Mm. And we have
2: to be honest Mm. about that. And when we're Mm. doing risk benefit of treatment versus not your child's risk benefit looks different and it's not fair, but that's the reality. Right. So what do we do? How do we work around this in a way that that is okay with you? The other thing I think um, sometimes helps resonate with families is um, the brain is an organ, just like any other organ. Just like you can have a short circuit in your heart and have a heart attack, you can have some circuitry, go a different way in your brain and have an issue that is causing a problem. Um, and so kind of using analogies like, um, you know, diabetes or, or heart issues or, or what have you sometimes can be helpful um, in helping people like think about this, like on a real basic biological level. Like sometimes the brain doesn't do what it should Um in a way that hurts people. And we have tools to help, just like we have tools to help with other things. And there's no reason we shouldn't use those tools. Now, um, medication is not the be all end all, it's a blunt instrument. And in most cases, I'd say virtually all cases, it needs to be paired with other things, right? Um, And and a good um, treatment relationship and alliance is going to meet people where they are until they're ready for you know more intense interventions if and when they're indicated.
0: That, that, that's very helpful. Um, and I hope that our our little podcast will do exactly what what you hope it will do and help get the information out there so people can have the conversation, right? Because that's what we're trying to be about exactly. People have the conversation. So of course we've run out of time. We haven't touched <laughs> on any of the other things like forensic psychiatry or you know, the whole issue of culturally competent people, which uh, impacts all professions. Um, so, but but here we are. So uh, our wrap up question always for everybody is, if the audience can only absorb one thing about what you said, what, what do you want our listeners to walk away with that's important about the information that you're trying to get out?
2: I don't know that I said this explicitly. I think I, I kind of hinted at it, but this idea of um, mental health preservation and setting yourself up and the people you love up um, to be mentally healthy um, and understanding that. I love Audrey Lord's quote about um, self-care being um, an act of political warfare particularly for black people, right in a society that's literally been designed to to take your humanity away and that has at certain times mm. um that there's a way that sometimes um self-care is framed as being bougie or sadti or whatever, right And it's not like it is absolutely necessary um in order to do the hard work of of advocating for and serving and uh, moving our people forward.
0: That's that's a great wrap up. Thank you so much, Dr. Vincent. That was, I, that was I
1: feel relaxed already.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Wait, be careful! She'll send you a bill.
1: <laughs> okay. right. I'm just if you can give me a prescription, that'd be great.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much, and we hope that uh, you'll come back in the future and chat with us again.
2: Thank you.
1: So Michelle, that was fantastic with Dr. Vincent, Um, you know, we we talked about um, at the beginning of the uh, program, how we're doing mental health wise, you know, and I talked about how, how great I felt getting ready, you know, to go back into work and travel and everything again, but, you know, I'm blessed, okay, there's a lot of people out there that are not that fortunate.
0: Right. And we always have to keep in mind that we are very privileged. Yes. uh, And that privilege operates on many levels, Mm -hmm. not just black and white, but uh, education, wealth, everything. So um, we're happy that we're able to have a person like uh, Dr. Vincent's quality be on the show uh, and help us think through these issues of mental health services in our communities. If you enjoyed what you heard today, visit our website, NubianTigersPodcast.com. In addition to the podcast, we also post a resource page for each subject to provide additional sources of information. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nubian Tigers, written as one word. We're also on YouTube on the Nubian Tigers podcast channel. Our podcast is hosted by Anchor FM, but if you have a favorite podcast app, we're probably on it. Just look for Nubian Tigers Talk. Looking forward to sharing some knowledge with you next time.
1: Wake up, wake up, wake up.